two readings this morning. Uh, the first one is in the Song of Songs, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 13. And then the second reading is in Matthew, chapter 19. So I'll give you a second if you want to look it up. Nope, I think you're all good. Okay, and this begins in the voice of the he in, in the story. Remember, there are several characters in the Song of Songs. And there's the lover and the beloved. And uh, this is the he character, okay? How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. She May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. Matthew chapter 19, 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them 
male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And thus ends the reading of the word. If you're here last week, we heard Robin and Kamina talking about how the Song of Songs presents wise love, our love as God designed it, as exclusive or covenantal and as mutual and intimate. And we're going to look at exclusivity this week, the, the basis or the context for wise love and mutuality and intimacy next week. It's qualities. And while that poem Rosemary just read is weird and intense, especially if we try to draw the beloved woman from the metaphors that are used, you get a portrait something like this. Uh, it's actually a picture of an ideal sort of love. It's a picture of the sort of love that Solomon failed to practice in his thousand marriages. It's the sort of love and a poem that's full of garden imagery and language. It's the sort of love that throws us back to Eden and to God's design for human relationships. And right back in the beginning of the Bible, we're told God creates us, male and female, in his image, we're made to reflect what God is like in the world, his love. And we can only do that if we're in right relationship with him, if we know that love and so can reflect it. And the God we meet in the Bible, the God of the Bible who is revealed in Jesus is a communion of persons. The Trinity involves three persons together in oneness, together bound by love. And so when we say with John in his letter that God is love, we're not just talking about God's love for people and for the world, but the love that is at work within the life of God. And so when we're made in the image of God as male and female, we're made as persons to join together in this sort of love. And so in Genesis 2, we get God creating a man alone and we're told it's not good. Everything else in the story so far has been good. Uh, but then God creates a woman from him and for him a woman taken from his side who he is to become one with again in love as they cleave together in marriage. Part of why Adam is not good is because alone he can't represent the God who is love. Alone he can't be fruitful and multiply. And so God creates the woman 
and he puts them in this garden, this picture of fruitful relationship with him and with each other, Eden, this picture of right relationship where wisdom is to be worked out, where they're to bear God's image as they take up the call to flourish together in love. And as we saw last week, as we looked at sex in 1 Corinthians, when the man and woman are joined together as one flesh, there's this picture of what has been separated being bringing being brought together, this picture of love joining them together, they're rejoined in this union. And it's important to note here, they aren't half persons who are made whole by this, but a man and a woman united in love in a way that reflects God's life and love and their relationship with him as image bearers. But then in the story, sin enters the picture and where there should be union, where there should be oneness between these people, both sexual when it comes to Adam and Eve and in a shared purpose, being fruitful and multiplying and guarding and keeping the garden, living in right relationship with God. But there's meant to be all that, we get division. Instead of joining together in wise response to the serpent and kicking him out of the garden and pursuing God-likeness in relationship with God, the man and the woman lead one another away from God and they blame each other. And so this event called the fall involves division between the husband and the wife and division between God and humanity. The relationship in Genesis 2 between humans and God, it's been described by many as covenantal and this sin is a breaking of that covenant relationship, that commitment between the people and God, between the man and the woman together. And so this brings curse. It brings division. So no longer are they ruling together and being fruitful in God's world But the wife now desires her husband and the husband rules over her, dominating her. This is a cursed pattern of relationships. And at the same time, not only is there a fracturing of the relationship, they were created to enjoy that relationship of love for each other, there's a breaking of the covenantal relationship with God. And so there's exile from God. God banishes them from the garden. Reflecting his nature is going to be harder when we're not in right relationship with him and in the world, in that Eden-like place, but out in the wilds in exile. And so this cursed pattern becomes the pattern that repeats itself through Israel's story, the pattern that leads people to exile from God, a pattern that involves cursed love between people. And we see this pattern not just in Solomon's own life, but in his family tree. Solomon learns about love from his dad, David. So if you know the story, Solomon's mum and dad were united in what we would call in our legal setting, rape. It's not love. A powerful king sends soldiers to grab this woman and bring her to him and she can't refuse. And this is actually literally a repeat of Genesis 3 because it's got the same Hebrew words. Just like Eve saw that the fruit was beautiful and took it, fruit she'd been told not to. David sees that Bathsheba was beautiful and that word get, when he sends messengers to get her, it's actually the word take. David reaches out and with his power grabs this woman and ultimately David, if you know the story, has Bathsheba's husband, his friend Uriah, murdered and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. They have a son named Solomon, the son who God loves. But in the middle of this story, in the fallout of this sin, Nathan the prophet comes to David with a curse. A curse will remain on his family. The sword will not depart. And there's even this promise that his sons are going to be affected by this. Someone close to him will take his sexual sin and amplify it. And we see that in the story. Solomon and his brothers are a red-hot mess 
of cursed behaviour when it comes to sex and relationships. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Solomon gets marriage wrong, when his desires lead to marrying women God forbids him to marry, to getting them for himself, amassing them like gold, treating them like objects. And we shouldn't be surprised when that desire and that taking leads Israel into exile, just like Adam and Eve were sent into exile in the story, because this is the pattern. Nor should we see Solomon's sexual love with a thousand women being the sort of love described in Genesis 2. Solomon ends up being just like his father David and just like their father Adam. These relationships are not wise because they aren't grounded in right relationship, covenant relationship with God or in his design for people and relationships. But in this song, despite its weird poetry, we get a different picture of love, a a different sort of love, wise love, life-giving love, Edenic love, love contrasted with Solomon and specifically contrasted with the curse from Genesis. I don't know if you saw it there in the midst of the weird metaphors, but there's this statement from the woman, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. That's a turning upside down of Genesis 3.16. They're describing a love that's mutual and intimate, but also covenantal where they belong to one another and are united in love. And it's a kind of love that leads them into fruitful life, oneness and love in a fruit-filled garden. And so there's a picture here of some sort of restoration. We're going to hear more about how wise love is covenantal uh, with each other and within the covenant people of God from Robin and Kamina just now. So Kamina, um, in your PhD, you unpack the idea of covenant a little. Mm-hmm. Um, and this covenant idea is something we see a fair bit of in the Bible, but it's not a word that we use an awful lot of today. Mm. Um, can you unpack probably just quickly what we mean by the term covenant and uh, in the Bible and where we see it in the song? Yeah, so a covenant in broad terms is just a really solemn promise, um, usually with some kind of um, mutual conditions or participation on both sides. Two people promise to keep a deal. Um, so I think the the idea of covenant, the biggest idea that we have that kind of overrides the whole Old Testament and New Testament is this idea of a covenant that God has made with his people. So God has promised to be his people's God and to protect them, love them, be theirs for eternity, install them kind of in a peaceful place for eternity. Um, And God's people, all they have to do to hold up their side of the bargain is basically to be faithful to him. So um, that's kind of, that's a big idea. Another time that we and we still use this today the idea of covenant is our marriage covenant so you can see a marriage is a promise that happens with conditions on two sides two parties are going to enter in and promise to do that together um now the song of songs isn't uh mostly or even a little bit really about mar- about marriage um you know, i don't know if we'll talk about that but um i do think that there's this connection um in the song between this idea of kind of very uh, like this covenantal love that the the man and the woman have, this kind of exclusively committed love, um, contrasted with this picture of Solomon who had multitudes of women um, and he kind of gathered up wives, but the way he performed marriage was not sort of exclusive and covenantal as it should have been. Yeah, okay. So the two characters, the woman and the beloved, you said they enjoy this exclusive relationship. Mm. Um, so how does this exclusive relationship 
relate to faithfulness to each other? Um, well, it's interesting because in the song we don't really have any threats to their love except possibly Solomon. Now, there's an idea that some people subscribe to that Solomon might actually have his eye on grabbing the woman for his own harem. He's seen and desired her. He wants to take her. But she insists that she's going to be, uh, I guess, true to her true love. So I think there's something in that. Um, and we see it in the way that the the beloved and the woman kind of express their love for each other, um, the language that they use about each other in the poem. So there's this, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved is mine and I'm his. That gets repeated a couple of times. So this is very, um, this is very mirror image kind of mutuality in the language that they use for each other. Um, so through the poetry, you just get this idea. There's this pattern of them relating as like she constantly calls him the one my soul loves. He calls her the most beautiful among women. Um, and they give each other these complimentary kind of compliments. And so we get that from the poetry. We get the idea, oh, this is a really exclusively committed couple. Yeah, there's no interest in anyone else around them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess another question, maybe going on a different tangent, is how does the like the these physical representations of love, how does that relate to like the sexual and the spiritual? Like how are they kind mm. of connected in the book? Well, I think in the Old Testament, and this is something that's a bit culturally strange to us, uh, sex and spirituality are always linked. You can't really talk about one without talking about the other. So um, we see this manifest. I think a, probably a really classic place to look for this is the book of Proverbs, and I encourage people to go and read Proverbs 1 to 9, where um, the path of wisdom is metaphorically um, akin to marrying a woman wisdom. Um, and then the path of folly is described in terms of uh, marry or kind of allying yourself with an adulteress or a foreign woman. Funnily enough, she's called the foreign woman, which is the women that Solomon married were all foreign women. Um, and so regardless of whether you're a person who's actually married or sees yourself getting married or not, the metaphor is that um, following a path of wisdom rooted in the fear of the Lord would be like having a kind of covenantal relationship with wisdom. And then uh, kind of the opposite of that is uh, being unfaithful to wisdom and going off with lady folly. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we come to a poem that's about a sexual relationship, a love relationship, if we've got our heads in the Old Testament, we should be going, oh, ding, ding, this is something to do with sex and love. This has got to be something to do with faithfulness to God and, and a wise life as well because the things are always linked in, in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, that will be good to, um, I think, explore. Mm. Um, so I just want to jump to some of the imagery in the book. Um, we've talked about gazelles before, mm. but there's heaps of... Um, weird imagery um and i guess so here's something i noticed like there's blossoms in the vineyard your eyes are doves an apple tree in the orchard your breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle hair like flocks of goats teeth like flock of ewes i mean it goes on and on yeah. what is with this all like weird poetry mm. um and is it just you mentioned um the relationship with the Egyptian poetry, but could you just go into that a bit more and what are we supposed to do with these images? 
Well, I think in terms of the garden imagery, so there's a couple of levels at which it operates. Within the song itself, um, the kind of pastoral setting, the garden setting out in the fields, that's where good stuff happens between the woman and her beloved. They're always outside. There's even a bit where she talks about their bed being like green and made of trees. And there's this image that maybe they're, they're literally making love outdoors, like they're out in the field together having a great time. Whereas in the city is where bad things happen in the poem. And so um, the city is a harsh place where the woman can't find her beloved and she's looking for him. The city is the place that the, would be where the king lived. Um, and as we've seen, King Solomon is kind of an ominous figure in the poem. That's not to say that cities in general are bad places in the Bible, but just that in the song, the kind of the garden or the field is a place of fruitfulness and love and enjoyment. And the city is a really harsh um, kind of hostile environment. And then I think if we extend that out, to other imagery in the Bible, uh, this kind of springtime uh, blossoming imagery, uh, vineyards growing and blooming, uh, is associated particularly in the prophetic literature with kind of the, the day of the Lord and the return of the time when he's going to make everything okay for his people. Mm. Um, because the opposite image of, of vineyards kind of shriveling and drying up and being burned is associated with judgment. So when we get our fruitfulness and garden imagery and vineyard imagery, we associate that with God's goodness and God's love for his people. And I think, yeah, we, I think, it's really obvious for us to think, well, maybe that takes us back to Eden because originally we had a man and a woman, perfect in the garden, naked together and not ashamed. So I think absolutely the love between the man and the woman um, alludes to that, makes us think of that too. And there might be something in the idea of, um, you know, we're wanting to return to something unspoiled. Although it's worth noting that it's not entirely unspoiled in the song. Um, it doesn't seem as safe and secure as Eden, but certainly there are moments and glimpses of that. Yeah, so I, I, like, I think I can see a lot of garden imagery there and the two things that sprung to mind were Eden but also Revelation 21 with the new heavens and new earth and this, like, abundance of, like, I kind of think Revelation 21 is the Garden of Eden on steroids, yes. um, which is kind of cool. And those images definitely, I think, come up in Song of Solomon. Um, something interesting that I've... Um, you know, happy to hear your thoughts on. So Songs um, chapter 7 verses 10 to 12 has got this phrase, I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me, mm. which seems quite the reverse of Genesis 3 verse 16. Um, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And both of them are embedded in this garden imagery. Mm. So um, song seven and onwards come my beloved let's go out to the fields as you're speaking and lodge in the village let's go out to the vineyards and see where whether the vines have budded um, there I'll give you my love mm. um, is this do you think there is anything to this um, kind of parallel there Yes, I think so. I don't know that it's super sustained throughout the poem. Like it's hard to build a whole theory of the entire poem is an entire reversal of the Garden of Eden in every detail because there's lots of other things going on in the poem as well. But it's interesting you mentioned that word desire because the, the Hebrew word for desire there, um, which as you said, it's it's uh, it happens in the curse, your desire will be for your husband, he'll rule over you. And then in the song she says, um, you know, I am my beloved's, his desire is for me. That's that's the only time those that word appears in the Hebrew Bible. 
It pops up just after the curse again when God says that sin will be crouching at your door, its desire will be for you. But then it disappears from the Bible. It's never used again until it appears here in the song. And so I think that we have to, I would see that as a definitely a deliberate um, illusion, picking up what's happening in the curse and yet reversing it. I think in many ways we see the relationship in the song as a reversal of the brokenness of relationship in Eden in terms of the way men and women relate to each other particularly because as we've seen, the relationship in the song is deliberately subverting that kind of patriarchal um, model of relationship where women are bought and sold and owned um, and it's giving women uh, kind of this expression of mutuality and equal power with the men that they love and desire. Yeah. Yeah, which, as you mentioned before, is quite countercultural mm-hmm. for the time, which I think is challenging. Um, <clears throat> so you and I are obviously not the first readers of the book, and so, um, you know, it was probably read by post-exile Old Testament Jews, such mm-hmm. as Nehemiah and Ezra's time. Um, how do you think those first um, readers understood the Song of Songs? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Nehemiah because... Um, for anyone who's not familiar, when this the story Ezra and Nehemiah recounts the story of how after many years in exile, uh, God's people come back into the land and decide to rebuild their temple. And they sort of start building the wall and doing this and that. And then they get distracted and they start marrying the women around them that are foreign women who don't worship God. And the big problem is that they start to sort of assimilate into that society and no longer look distinctive as God's people. And they forget who their God is, and more importantly, their children can't speak and read their language anymore, so they can't read the Jewish scriptures anymore. So they can't understand their religious heritage. And so Nehemiah gets very upset about this, and he says, hey, remember King Solomon? He was the wisest king we ever had, and even foreign women caused him to sin. You're no better than him. Even God loved him. He loves you, but you're doing the same thing that Solomon did. And so I think... um, I think that when we think about how God's people kind of post-exile would have received this word, they really needed a reminder Mm. that uh, they shouldn't conduct their lives the way that Solomon did because Solomon's love led to his kingdom being divided, the kings getting worse and worse and worse, Israelites worshipping foreign gods and eventually going into exile. That was the result of Solomon's love. And so I think that maybe God's people really needed this urgent reminder not to make the same mistakes that Solomon did. And also a reminder that um, God's kings, even the kings that God had placed on earth, were really fallible and that they couldn't put their faith in a king like Solomon. Um, I think that was probably uh, where the message was really pointed for them at that time. Yeah. So as Kamina points out, the song offers a critique of Solomon, uh, but it's still worth reflecting on Solomon's approach. Sorry, it's both reflecting on Solomon's approach and a world where men like Solomon become kings and rule over women and treat them as objects and so lead people away from God. Uh, and it's for us, as we live in a world where men operate under the pattern of the curse of Genesis 3.16, where we live like Solomon and love like Solomon loves, the curse is alive and well. I don't know what slide we're meant to be on here, but not that well. It's all right. There should be a picture of Jesus there. I don't know what's going on. Okay, Uh, we need to be returned to something like Eden. We need a new covenant and to have that shape our lives and our loves if we want to be wise people. Uh, Juliet, can you see the slide number on that? Because that's like right at the end, I think. All right, we'll work with it. It's all right. 
and we get that path, a path and a pattern to walk uh, in wisdom, in love, uh, and a hope for the future in a new Eden, a new covenant. We get that with Jesus. Jesus gives us a new family pattern to live out, a new pattern for love, one that should shape us as image bearers again in right relationship with God. See, whatever your family history, when it comes to love and marriage, whatever patterns of relationships between men and women you have inherited, however much they've been impacted by the fall and the curse, Jesus teaches us to love differently to the curse, to live differently in our relationships, to live differently as the covenant people of God, restored by him. Solomon's love, learned from David and from Adam and Eve, that leads to exile from God. And Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, his love leads us back to Eden, to oneness with God, and so with one another in this new covenant. Covenants in the Old Testament were sealed with promises and sacrifices and seals, and Jesus offers us both a promise of life together with him as his bride, and he sacrifices himself out of love at the cross to bring us into this relationship, to create this covenant, and he seals us to himself by giving us God's spirit, which gives us new hearts and new restored relationship with him and with God. So when Jesus teaches about marriage as new covenant people, he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to this picture of flourishing humanity built on union, exclusive union where two people become one flesh. And he gives us a pattern for wise love and wise sex and wise marriage. See, our culture might treat marriage uh, and sex as meaningless and disposable, as utterly non-exclusive, as a place where we go to secure our own pleasure. But that is not God's picture of wise life. That is not what we were or what sex was created for. This becoming one flesh is both covenantal and sexual. And we saw that last week in 1 Corinthians. So wise love, wise sex involves marriage as a covenantal relationship of sexual exclusivity. And that's actually the foundation for mutuality and for intimacy and for flourishing if two people are going to be joined together as one, remembering that we are whole people without marriage or sex. This isn't to say that if you've been not committed to sexual exclusivity, that you're outside the bounds of God's love. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, Israel being non-exclusive as lovers of God never stopped God's offer of love or his gracious offer of forgiveness or his commitment, his own commitment to exclusivity and to the covenant. But, and I want to say this carefully and being aware of the vast pastoral complexity here, the Bible suggests that sex outside of the covenant commitment of marriage is both sinful and it's unwise. And so it offers forgiveness for sin in Jesus, but also a different pattern for life and for love in Jesus. Sin, false love that isn't an expression of covenantal faithfulness with God, that leads us to exile from God and forgiveness brings us home. Folly, foolishness, leads to negative consequences in our lives. And so wisdom is a path back to fruitful living and sin and folly are tied together and so too are forgiveness and new life. And Jesus leads us out of exile and back to God, providing both forgiveness and wisdom, providing this different pattern, this different way of thinking about marriage. He says for these new covenant people, people swept up 
in his love, this becoming one, we're to understand it as God joining people together. This act of marriage and sex isn't just something we do, but something God does. God's at work in our covenantal relationships, and these relationships are actually made to be enjoyed in covenant relationship with him. Now, the world will and does and always has approach marriage in different ways to what we find in Jesus, just like Solomon did. The, the pattern of Genesis 3 runs through our humanity. It will define marriage around feelings and pleasure and desire and a, a love when it feels good love and at worst around the sort of male power we see in Solomon, that patriarchy. But God wants to build love on exclusive and deep covenant commitment built on something lasting as an expression of his deep, lasting covenant love for us. Jesus even says that back in the covenant with Israel, sealed with the law of Moses rather than the spirit, God's people, they were allowed to divorce because their hearts were hard. That was a concession to them. They didn't have new hearts that we get with the spirit. They didn't have the same union with Jesus that we have. But for those in his kingdom, things are different. He says, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus takes marriage as a reflection of our covenant relationship with God very seriously. Those of us with new hearts have new loves and we're called to a new way of life in the cursed world, new relationships with one another. Jesus is more seriously against divorce for the soft-hearted, spirit-filled people of his kingdom than he than God was for hard-hearted people under Moses and under Solomon because marriage now isn't just a picture of God's relationship with Israel but his relationship with us in Jesus where we're made one by the Spirit. Now, this isn't to say that divorce is never a wise choice for Christians. In marriages that obviously are not reflecting the love of Jesus in the church where there's sexual immorality, uh, including when a spouse is abusive in ways that undermine the union that sex expresses as the coming together of people, Jesus permits divorce. And Paul will in 1 Corinthians 7 ad advise a spouse to divorce when their spouse abandons the marriage. And let me be clear here, this includes domestic abuse as well as adultery. This is not teaching people to remain in abusive relationships, but telling Christians together to pursue God's faithful love as the defining quality of our wise relationships. And so covenant exclusivity is the foundation of those relationships, and that's what makes our marriages remarkably different from disposable relationships out there in the world where people are disposable or objects that we conquer like Solomon did. Well, love is given so long as it pleases me or when we operate as individuals and take a consumer approach to love and sex and marriage and weddings, and we find that in apps and magazines and in Solomon. So here are some principles, remembering that this is about wisdom and remembering that many of us, even those of us here who have been married for longer than 5,083 days, which is where we're up to today, and there's plenty of you out there who've been married for longer than us, uh, we won't always be wise in this area. Wisdom is something we cultivate as people being made new by God's grace. And so first up, wise sex is sex that happens not only in marriage, but in a marriage built on covenant relationship with God. Second, for married people, that means investing in love for each other that is exclusive 
and is about this one flesh relationship. Love is not about a feeling, but about a deep commitment to oneness. And sex is an expression of that oneness. And it's something that can create it. Like in Genesis, in marriage, you belong to each other. Our bodies don't exist and sex doesn't exist simply for our own pleasure or autonomy. And our spouse's bodies do not exist as objects or commodities for our enjoyment. But within a covenant framework, we're in love, we belong to and desire one another. And to be clear, this isn't just telling wives they belong to their husbands. That would not be radical. That would be the way of Solomon. That would be Genesis 3. This is telling us that mutual love, the mutual love on display in the song, means husbands belong to their wives whose desires also matter. Third, because marriage is exclusive, wise marriage is built on avoiding sexual immorality. This includes adultery and that includes pornography. And this is also a note for the unmarried. Jesus says lust is adultery. Solomon might have had a thousand wives, but the body count of the average porn user is probably up there with Solomon. And this undermines exclusivity and covenant faithfulness, both with the people whose images are captured where there's no covenant, but also with your spouse. And this sort of adultery, sexual immorality, it's forgivable. And like infidelity, it doesn't have to lead to divorce. It's great when it doesn't, when forgiveness and restoration happens, but it does fit Jesus' teaching on when divorce is permissible. Sexual immorality isn't just sinful, it's foolish and destructive. It's not the life-giving approach to sexual pleasure and marriage we see in the song or the love we see in God's love for us. Fourth, because marriage is covenantal and the context of that commitment between two people is our commitment to God, our covenant relationship with him and to life as his covenant people, marriage isn't just an individual reality between two persons but a corporate reality that belongs to us all. Our marriages, marriages within our community as the body of Jesus, are a picture of God's faithfulness. They're great pictures of faithfulness and our failures to be faithful impact all of us in community because we are actually connected. This isn't a culty thing. I'm not saying we own each other in that way, but it's a recognition that when a member of a community built on faithfulness and covenant promises commits adultery, undermining their covenant, it doesn't just affect that marriage, but the whole network of covenant relationships we belong to. In Jesus, not only does the husband belong to the wife and the wife to the husband, but in him we all belong to each other in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're connected in love and by the Spirit. And so when those of us who are married make marriage vows, and when we break marriage vows, these are actions that reflect how we understand our covenant relationship with God. The reasons the New Testament gives for divorce are reasons that uphold God's character and the nature of his love where marriages have been twisted and distorted. Divorce where these reasons don't exist, marriages that are disposable and not built on deep covenant love don't just damage an individual's understanding of God's love, but how a community understands and practices that together. And so this means for all of us, marriages within our community should be valued. They should be cherished and supported by each of us in ways that we reflect when we act as witnesses at a wedding to the promises that are made. We are all in this together. If you're married and you're struggling with your marriage, keep struggling. Don't give up. 
but bring the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, especially older, wiser brothers and sisters here in the body of Christ, in to help. We are here, and your covenant faithfulness through hard times, your commitment to not loving like the world, affects and inspires us, and you are not alone. Now, there's wisdom in Jesus' teaching here for non-married people too, for single people in different status, different reasons for singleness. And it's not just teaching about the marriage you might aspire to, but about your own relationship with God and with one another and your own approach to sex and your use of your body. And so the message from Jesus is if you're not married, pursue covenant faithfulness. Avoid porn and adultery for the same reason a married person does. Hook up sex without a covenant commitment. They're not wise. They're sinful as well, but they're not wise. And they reduce sex and reduce other people to being commodities that are used for your pleasure, just like Solomon did with his thousand women. Jesus teaches hard things about marriage. His disciples, as they hear him teaching about what marriage looks like for the new covenant people, they think his teaching is really hard. They say, Jesus, it would be better not to get married if it's like this. And Jesus says, well, yes. And it's like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage is in a world where Solomon ruled. Marriage is in a world we live in where people are commodities or conveniences, where marriages are contracts that we enter into for a short time rather than exclusive commitments. Those are easy. Marriages in the kingdom of heaven are difficult. And so Jesus speaks to those of us who are single, those choosing not to marry for the sake of the kingdom or those not yet married, those choosing to be single, to not have sex like a eunuch rather than to be united to a non-Christian, someone outside the covenant people. To those choosing not to unite their bodies with anyone else but to be whole in themselves and in their relationship with God. See, Jesus himself was not married and yet in him we see the image of God. We see God's love for people on display. We see a full picture of human flourishing because real flourishing is actually about our covenant relationship with God. That's secured for us by Jesus through his sacrifice on our behalf. It's about being restored to God, restored to the hope of a new kingdom by the one greater than Solomon who brings God's spirit and God's kingdom. And so for those of us who are single, your singleness, your faithfulness, your commitment to using your body to honour God exclusively, we cherish that in this community. We are thankful for you. And our calling, all of us, those who are single and those who are married, is to support one another in this calling. Your faithfulness also belongs to all of us because we belong to each other. In God's kingdom, the path to fruitfulness is not linked to marriage and procreation, but to covenant faithfulness to Jesus. It's linked to us becoming disciples of Jesus, becoming images of God who are like him, to life together as the bride of Christ. This new reality shapes how we approach sex and marriage. This way of love we live together is something we uphold together as God's covenant people. See, we, make, we see people make promises, covenant promises, to each other in marriage. But there's another place in our community where we make promises to one another that marks us out as the covenant people. And that's in our baptisms. Those events where we mark ourselves as people united to Jesus, 
one with him and where we promise to care for one another and to call one another to faithfulness to him. We belong to one another. Not just husband to wife and wife to husband, but members of the body of Jesus. This is our covenantal framework that we operate in. This covenantal framework, this belonging to one another, this being bound together in exclusive love, united by the Spirit, is what produces image bearers, what produces disciples who live and love in right relationship with God, who are restored from exile, who don't treat other people as commodities, but as members of our body, as those we are called to love and serve and live with, who we will live with for eternity. The cursed pattern of Genesis 3 involves using and abusing power over people. It involves turning people into objects. It involves using your desires to get what you want. But in the covenant people of God, that is not our way of life. Our togetherness is a reflection of the love that we see embodied in the song between this couple who are trying to step out of the curse. We have the way out in Jesus. And this sort of mutuality, this sort of exclusivity is something we can cultivate both in our marriages and in our union with Christ together. Will you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be wise in the way that we love one another. We pray that you would help us to be wise in the way we use our bodies and the way we shape our desires. We pray that instead of having our desires shaped by the cursed world, the world where Solomon ruled, that we would have our desires shaped by the kingdom of God. That would shape our approach to marriage for those of us who are married, that we would be committed to this exclusive, deep, covenantal love to one another, to loving the person we're married to with the love of Jesus. So we pray too for our brothers and sisters here this morning who are not married, those who would like to be one day or those who are just committed to serving you in their singleness. We pray that we would be so committed to their faithfulness, so supportive of them in their new life in Jesus, so loving to them, that our love and our life together points us towards your love for us and points us to our future with you, an eternal future in a new Eden as the bride of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.